The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. You will remember that in the previous messages in this series, messages from chapter 1, we have emphasized Paul's focus on the person and work of Christ. Paul's focus on the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ. There were people in Colossae, false teachers who had infiltrated the church, who were teaching the Christians there that what they believed about Christ was insufficient. That if they really wanted to grow in the Christian faith, they needed something more. They needed to move beyond Christ. They needed to supplement Christ. They needed to add something to Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he combats that teaching by showing the Colossians who Christ is and what he has done. And then he asks them, not explicitly, but the implication is clear, if Christ is who he, who Paul says he is, and if Christ has done what Paul says he has done, why would they, the Colossians, and by extension us, possibly look anywhere else other than to him if they and we truly want to grow in the Christian life? In fact, one of the major themes of the entire book of Colossians is that every believer is complete in Christ. That all the resources that we need to grow in grace are found in him. And the process of deepening in the Christian life is not starting with Christ and then moving on to something else. But it is starting with Christ and remaining in dependence upon him every step of the way. As we are conformed to his image uh, he who is the very image of the invisible God. Now, Paul opens chapter 2 of his epistle to the Colossians with this description of his prayers on their behalf. Now, he's already prayed for them in, uh, or described his prayers in chapter 1. And now he goes on and uh, describes it a little bit further in the first three verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, as we look at this passage together this morning, We'll be focusing on four things. Paul's fervent struggle in prayer for the Colossians. Uh, secondly, what that intercession entailed, the content of his intercession for them. And then uh, the third and fourth things we'll be looking at are Paul's aims in praying these things for the Colossians. Namely, that uh, all doubt would be defeated and that they would come to treasure Christ. So that's what we will be looking at this morning in this passage. Now, 
Let's start with Paul's struggle in prayer for them. Paul's struggle in verse 1 is a reference to his prayer life. Uh, Intercession, says Paul, is a battle, an agonizing war that demands concentration, effort, and sustained devotion. That's what what Paul is indicating there by uh, describing his prayers for them as a struggle. Uh, We see the same idea in Romans 15, verse 30, where Paul exhorts the Christians in Rome to join him in his struggle by praying to God on his behalf. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And then later in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God of God, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Paul's painting a picture here of prayer that uh, I think is, is somewhat lost, <coughs> excuse me, on, the, uh, on today's church. Uh, I mean, how often do we really struggle in prayer for others? Uh, but the question needs to be answered, with what or whom does one struggle or wrestle in prayer. Why is it a struggle? Is it the distractions of the world against which we fight? Is it the temptations of the enemy? Is our struggle with the fear that that perhaps prayer is a waste of time? Uh, I think many of us struggle with that. Uh, we, We don't say it, we don't talk about it, but we wonder, you know, is this really making a difference? Uh, the time and the, 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 energy and the effort that we put into this. Or maybe we wrestle with the weakness and the lethargy of our own flesh, struggling to overcome the natural tendency to give in too quickly. Could it possibly be that God himself, or could it be God himself with whom we strive and struggle? We'll come back to that in a little while. But first, what makes Paul's statement even more interesting here is that he had never even met the people for whom he prayed with such agonizing effort. I mean, we have enough difficulty praying for the people we love and are committed to, right? And here's Paul praying for people uh, he had never even met. They have not seen me face to face, says Paul, yet I intercede on their behalf unceasingly. Don't forget, Uh, that it was uh, Epaphras, not Paul, who brought the gospel to the Colossians. Uh, But no amount of geographical distance or um, uh, relational anonymity, we could call it, could hinder Paul's prayers for these saints. Uh, And this ought to put to rest the excuse some use, at least in their thinking, for their less than fervent intercession on behalf of those whom they do not know. And what I mean is that many are guided in their intercession for others by the thought, perhaps even subconsciously, well, I, I don't know them. They don't know me. I mean, I can't even mention their name. Uh, God knows who they are. He'll hear, so I'll just quickly mention the need to him and leave it at that. You know, that seems to be the extent sometimes of, of 
our effort in prayer for those whom we do not know. That's how we often pray for those that we do not know and are not really emotionally invested in. I mean, it's as though we don't even really care if such prayers are answered or not. Uh, We pray and then more or less forget all about it. But that's not what we see from Paul here. He struggled in prayer. He agonized in prayer for the Colossians, even though he had never met any of them. And he prayed the same way, of course, for, for those whom he did know. It didn't matter whether he knew them or not. He agonized in prayer for those uh, for those for whom he was making intercession. Now, I think we can be encouraged in our own intercessory struggle uh, by the example of others. Consider David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the American Indians, son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, for a season lived in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, David Brainerd frequently wrote in his diary of wrestling with God, wrestling with God in prayer. Uh, The entry for Monday, April 19th, 1742, for example, reads in part, quote, God enabled me so to agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade and the wind cool. My soul was drawn out very much for the world. I grasped for multitudes of souls. On the next day, he wrote, I think my soul was never so drawn out in intercession for others as it has been this night. Had a most fervent wrestle with the Lord tonight for my enemies. Think about that. I was enabled to cry to God with a childlike spirit and to continue instant in prayer for some time was much enlarged in the sweet duty of intercession, was enabled to remember great numbers of dear friends and precious souls, as well as Christ's ministers, continued in this frame, afraid of every idle thought, till I dropped asleep. Puritan writer and preacher Joseph Allen, his wife once wrote of him, at the time of his health, He did rise constantly at or before four o'clock in the morning and would be much troubled if he heard smiths or other craftsmen at their trades before he was at communion with God, saying to me after, how this noise shames me. Does not my master, does not my master deserve more than theirs? Martin Luther certainly knew how to struggle in prayer on behalf of other believers. Of his intercession on behalf of his friend and colleague, Philip Melanchthon, he wrote, This time I besought the Almighty with great vigor. I attacked him with his own weapons, quoting from Scripture all the promises I could remember, that prayer should be granted, and said that he must grant my prayer if I was henceforth to put my faith in his promises. That may sound uh, presumptuous or arrogant, but it's not. That's faith, amen? That's faith. And on this point, 19th century Presbyterian preacher, James H. Thornwell, once wrote, We pray, but what is there of agony in our prayers? Who wrestles with God? Whose soul is burdened with the weight of a perishing world? Or who takes an hour from his sleep or foregoes a single meal in order that he may plead the cause of millions upon millions that know not God? And are such prayers sacrifices? 
Are they more than breath? And can there be any wonder that mere breath should not move the Lord of hosts? Now, let me offer one word of caution at this point. This sort of striving and struggling with God in prayer is proper so long as it does not degenerate into a conflict of wills. That's not what I'm speaking about here. That's not what any of these uh, men of God are speaking about either. Uh, The function of prayer is not to bend God's will to ours. We understand that, right? It is not to bend God's will to ours. It's not to wrench from him what he is reluctant to give. We must never believe ourselves capable of overpowering the creator or forcing his hand. Theologian C.E.B. Cranfield reminded his readers in his commentary on the book of Romans, he says this, to entertain any notion of trying to exert pressure upon God to compel him to do that which he himself does not will to do, or of mobilizing one's fellow Christians with a view to constraining him by a combination of force, is to lapse into paganism. Paganism. That being said, when was the last time you had what Brainerd called a most fervent wrestle with the Lord? A most fervent wrestle with the Lord on behalf of those you know and love, not to mention those who have not seen you face to face. Now, I must admit that this has often been an area of weakness and deficiency in my own Christian life. And I'm sure for many of you that has been your experience also. That's why I have entitled this morning's message, Struggling to Struggle. Struggling to Struggle. It seems that we are ever struggling to struggle for others in prayer. Amen? We are forever struggling to struggle for others in prayer. And I would just stop right here and and pray that God would energize us in that struggle and empower us to agonize in our intercession and stir us to strive without ceasing in prayer for one another. Amen? That needs to be our prayer. Now, again, that Paul agonized and struggled in prayer for the Colossians is obvious, and that we should do the same For other believers, whether we know them or not, that's also beyond doubt. But what did he pray for? What should we pray for in this endeavor? And to answer this question, we need to look closely at verse 2. Again, the principal way in which Paul struggled on the Colossians' behalf was through intercessory prayer. And in verse 2, Paul turns now to inform them of precisely what it is that he is asking God to do on their behalf. And essentially, Paul says, the aim of my struggle is that your hearts would be encouraged. And this comes about primarily as you are knit together one with another in love and mutual support. The intended result of this ever-increasing unity and affection is that you might experience a deeper assurance that comes from increased understanding as well as a more profound and life-changing knowledge 
of Jesus Christ himself. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 2 when he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, let's begin with the first two elements in this uh, intercessory chain. Paul's purpose is, first of all, to encourage them, and secondly, to entwine them. The word translated encourage uh, here, it, it means more than simply to comfort. Beyond that, it means to strengthen. It means to fortify. And and Paul has in view here not so much the, the physical maltreatment, the, the persecution that they might face, but the heretical teaching and, and, and the, the uh, theological deception that could lead them away <coughs> from the truth of Christ. In verse 4 and verse 8 here in chapter 2 make this clear. In verse 4, Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So again, uh, Paul wants them to be encouraged, but in the sense of being strengthened or fortified against philosophical deception and heretical teaching that could lead them away from Christ. And this strengthening of the heart to stand firm and resolute when tempted by false teaching comes only comes about only to the degree that they are knit together or entwined by their love for one another. Uh, This isn't, uh, I don't think this is obvious until we see Paul uh, connecting it here. Love is the glue, so to speak, that binds and bonds their hearts one to another, preventing them from being ripped apart by schism and conflict and equips them to not lose heart in the face of opposition. Uh, And we'll come back to that in a moment. Then in the second half of verse 2, we see that the result of encouraged and entwined hearts is full assurance and the knowledge of God's mystery, namely Christ. Implicit in Paul's language here is the assumption that you can't grow up in God in isolation from other believers. You can't. Gaining the assurance of our faith and expanding our knowledge of Jesus are are. are things done in community with one another. In other words, the result of affection and unity in the body is not merely a a more passionate feeling, but as one man wrote, a more profound insight. Of course, thinking brings knowledge, studying brings knowledge, but apparently so too does love. Paul resists every temptation to cease praying. He strives and agonizes to overcome the the, the weakness of his physical body and, and the alluring temptations of the devil. Why? Because he wants the hearts of these people to be strengthened for battle and bonded in love so that, he says, 
they can be ever more assured of the truths of the faith and ever more entranced with the beauty and the all-sufficiency of Christ. Um, Yes, I suppose it's possible for a believer in isolation from others to grow in knowledge and assurance, but that's not the way God intends for it to happen. There is a there there is a strange there there is a mysterious <laughs> spiritual dynamic at work when Christian men and women corporately and in loving covenant relation one with another commit themselves to the pursuit of the knowledge of God together. There just is, um, and the insights that we gain from one another, the mutual accountability the collective wisdom that is generated in in the context of the local church, all serve to enhance our growth in godliness and understanding in a way that can never be fully attained when we venture out on our own. Now, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I've met many people uh, over the last 20 years or so who have said to me, many, for for whatever reason, they were hurt in a church or... uh, they had bad experience, whatever, and they no longer feel the need to be part of a local church body. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't need to be part of a church. I can read the Bible on my own and study and pray on my own. You've heard people talk like that, right? We all have. And I can say this. I have never once, not once in 20, over 20 years of ministry ever met a person who said that, who I would say is stable in their Christianity, who is stable in their faith. God has ordained the local church uh, to be a major um, means of grace for our growth uh, in the Christian faith, for our growth in wisdom and knowledge, for our growth in Christ-likeness. It serves as uh, protection to keep us from veering. Of course, we read the Bible ourselves. We study it uh, individually. Uh, But there's a danger in that if you come out from under the protection of the local church and the godly leaders who he establishes over us for our good. And I'll say it again. I've never met one person who I would consider stable um, and solid in, in, in their Christianity uh, there's always something uh, flaky, <laughs> I'll use that word, about them. Uh, they're always, uh, there's always some odd doctrinal things that they're into. Um, they just seem to lack a true understanding of, of, of the gospel at times. That, and that's what happens uh, when we separate ourselves. You know, Paul is very, very precise here. Uh, in, in praying the way he does, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It has never been, nor will it ever be, God's design for you to pursue your relationship with him independently of other believers in the body. And it's not only unbiblical to think otherwise, it's arrogant. It's arrogant to think otherwise. 
I mean, think about it. A finger is effective only if it is united to a hand. An eye can see only if it's embedded in a head. A foot is good for movement only if it is attached to a leg. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 and 27, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Therefore, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And again, not just (laughs) for the purpose of, uh, you know, meeting our social and relational needs. It goes much deeper than that. Being a committed member of a solid Bible-believing local church helps us to attain to what Paul is praying for here in verse 2, the, full, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Now, I'll have more to say about the assurance and the knowledge and, and the mystery, which is Christ, in, in just a minute. But let's not lose sight here of Paul's primary point. His point is basically this. I'm praying for you, he writes, that God would encourage you and entwine you in that most powerful of all affections, love, so that your minds might rest without wavering, fully convinced of all that God has promised, and that you would be ever more enriched by the knowledge of that great mystery, which is his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's emphasis here. Now, when it comes to doubt... Or uncertainty. It, it, doubt and uncertainty isn't always bad. It's not always bad. It can often be productive by driving us into deeper study and investigation. I mean, if we are absolutely convinced about everything, all of the time, beyond the shadow of a doubt, well, then we face the bigger problems of arrogance and pride, right? I mean, nobody can be absolutely convinced about everything all the time. I heard one man say once, I always laughed at this, uh, he grew up in a very um, very dogmatic church, uh, very fundamentalist church. Hey, and I like fundamentalism. <laughs> very uh, legalistic church. And, what he, and he said, he said, the pastors, they weren't always right, but they were never in doubt. They weren't always right, but they were never in doubt. And there's a problem with that, okay? There can be a problem with that. You know, doubt humbles. It reminds us that we are finite and that our knowledge is always subject to improvement and to increase. I mean, there are things I believe today that I, I, I didn't believe 20 years ago when I started teaching. Things I taught then that I don't teach anymore, that I'm embarrassed to say, right? I mean, and I'm sure we all had that experience, right? Um, Now, while doubt can be productive, it can also be crippling in a way that undermines our our relationship with God. If we are constantly doubting his word or wondering if he will fulfill his promises or, you know, cynical of of his stated intention, it's hard to grow spiritually uh, when that kind of doubt, you know, grips our heart. Uh, I've known those who were tormented by fears that God can't be as good as he portrays himself in Scripture, or they are paralyzed by uncertainty concerning the forgiveness of their sins. Some experience a gnawing anxiety about whether Jesus was really God and whether he can be trusted with their lives. And, and, and this sort of incessant uh, second-guessing of God's revealed truth and purposes is 
obviously, ultimately counterproductive to a healthy relationship with him and with others in the church. And this is why Paul's statement in Colossians 2, verse 2, is so important for us. One of his goals in praying for the Colossians was that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Now, there are three important things in that statement. First of all, full assurance. Full assurance is a very real possibility for us. That doesn't mean we will never again, you know, scratch our heads in, in bewilderment or wonder if, if a biblical statement can really mean what it seems to mean. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But it does mean there is a degree of certainty concerning the most basic and foundational truths in Scripture that is attainable in this life. Our knowledge will never be infallible or exhaustive, but it can be sufficiently accurate and adequate to sustain our hope and to energize our hearts to persevere in what God has called us to do. Uh, now, I don't think it's possible, at least on this side of heaven, for us to banish you know, every wayward thought that might run counter to what God says in his word. Until Christ comes, Satan will continue uh, to sow the seeds of doubt in our minds. Uh, adverse circumstances, uh, what appears to be unanswered prayer, an affliction that isn't healed, a spouse who abandons us, you know, among many other things, all have the potential to undermine in varying degrees our confidence in who God is. But that doesn't mean we can't experience what Paul refers to here as full assurance. Secondly, this assurance or, or conviction concerning the truth of the gospel is characterized by uh, the words riches, by the word riches, he calls it the riches of full assurance or the wealth of full assurance. There is great treasure in knowing that the gospel of Christ is true. Amen? There is great treasure in knowing that the gospel of Christ is true. There is indescribable spiritual value in resting confidently in the truthfulness of God's word. And I think this is Paul's way of saying that indescribable blessings and unfathomable joy and inexpressible peace fills the heart, the human heart, when it attains full assurance of all that God has made known of himself. Those are the riches of full assurance. Indescribable blessing, unfathomable joy, inexpressible peace. Those, that, that, that's why Paul refers to this as the riches of full assurance. But third, and, and maybe most important of all, uh, look closely again at Paul's words. Full assurance of understanding. Full assurance of understanding. And we could just as easily render this full assurance that comes from understanding. Full assurance that comes from understanding, or unshakable confidence that is produced by knowledge, or something like that. You could easily render it just like that. The, the, the point is that assurance is a function of knowledge. Assurance is a function of understanding. Our confidence in God's promises 
is subject uh, to varying degrees depending on the depth of understanding that we have attained in the things of God. Not everyone is equally confident about what God has revealed to us in Christ because not everyone is equally informed or knowledgeable about what God has revealed to us in Christ. Now, of course, and we've said this many times, when knowledge is made an end in and of itself or is prized for its own sake, then it breeds arrogance, it breeds pride, it puffs us up in arrogance and pride, according to 1 Corinthians 8.1. But when a person humbly applies himself to the pursuit of knowledge, spiritual knowledge, godly knowledge, biblical knowledge, and looks to the power of the Spirit to bring illumination and insight, the wealth of our assurance increases and the riches of of confident hope expand and although we we can have full assurance of eternal life the moment we trust in christ our confidence grows and it intensifies in direct proportion to our uh, understanding our, our cognitive grasp of the depth and the breadth of what God has revealed. As one commentator noted, knowledge is the soil in which the seeds of peace and certainty germinate. I'm going to say that again. Knowledge is the soil in which the seeds of peace and certainty germinate. For some, ignorance is bliss, but not when it comes to the assurance of faith. Ignorance of God And his revealed word is the breeding ground for heresy and skepticism. As our understanding deepens, so too does the peace and the tranquility of knowing that we know that God is true and will do what he has said he will do. Amen? Knowing that we know. Do you want to know how to defeat doubt? Simply put, defeat doubt by immersing your mind in the Word of God. Defeat doubt by immersing your mind in the Word of God. I mean, this is the God-ordained means by which the Spirit will indelibly imprint on your heart the joyful and undeniable assurance that what God has said, God will do. Paul said much the same thing when he prayed that the Romans might abound in hope in Romans 15, 13. But abundant hope or or full assurance only comes, he says in that same verse, in believing. In believing. Abundant hope or full assurance only comes in believing. In other words, in connection with and as a result of our faith in what God has made known. Sin-killing, Satan-silencing confidence, it doesn't just fall from heaven like manna. You can't get that by somebody coming and laying their hands on you and praying a prayer. Uh, you don't bump into it by chance as you're you know, going merrily along your way, blissfully and ignorantly. Uh, you know, down the path of life. The Spirit, the Spirit imparts hope and confidence and assurance by means of and only in connection with our growth in the knowledge and understanding of God 
in his word. Why are so many Christians lacking in hope and confidence and assurance? Because so many Christians, through neglect, are not growing in the knowledge and understanding of God in his word. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Now, with these opening verses of Colossians 2, uh, we come to the conclusion of Paul's intercessory prayer for them. Uh, it's, not, it's not really a conclusion. It's, it's more of the climax, the pinnacle, the ultimate aim, if you will, of all that Paul has prayed for them going back to chapter 1. Now, let's read these three verses one more time. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we've seen, as we have seen, Paul prays for their hearts to be encouraged and entwined in love so that they might experience the riches of assurance that flow from their understanding of all that God has revealed. But that understanding, that knowledge, has a unique and particular focus. And that focus is Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most destructive and threatening myth among so-called religious people is that there is knowledge of God apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So many claim to be spiritual and yet have no taste or relish for Jesus. Oh, I want the divine, they often say. I want to touch the transcendent. I want an encounter with that supernatural dimension of reality that exceeds the limitations of my own humanity. But I don't want Jesus. I refuse to acknowledge his deity or submit to his lordship. Now contrast that with 1 John chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Verse 21, no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This Christless spirituality that permeates our world, it must be identified and it must be repudiated with uncompromising and unyielding boldness and fervor. I'll never forget, Steve, you'll laugh at this. <laughs> a few years ago, I guess, well, I was, four or five years ago, I was teaching in chapel at the school. And I brought up the fact that um, Oprah Winfrey, who claims to be a Christian, uh, was promoting the works of Eckhart Tolle, a New Age guru. who He's the epitome of this Christless spirituality. And Oprah happened to say and assert that there are there are other ways to God. There are ways to God other than through Jesus Christ. And I forget what I was speaking about that day, but I remember I just got all, and I said, Oprah is a fool. And the kids never forgot that. Like even the next year, 
Um, Rachel Lasardo, you know, she, they, she'll tell me, I, I can't believe that day in chapel when you said Oprah is a fool. But really, Oprah is a fool, a very rich fool, a very popular fool. But let's face it, for her to call herself a Christian and, and assert so confidently that there are ways to God other than through Jesus Christ, that makes you a fool, right? And she's not alone. I mean, you could fill in the blank with, with countless names of people who promote this kind of thinking. They use their platforms uh, and their wealth to promote. Now, okay, she thinks she's helping people. I'm not saying she knowingly is out there uh, trying to deceive people. Well, some are, but I, I, I don't think she's one of them. But nevertheless, she's foolish and a fool. Um, there is no spiritual value in anything apart from Christ. There is no ultimate meaning in life apart from Christ. Good and evil, truth and falsehood are little more than personal preferences with no objective reality apart from the revelation of God in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul prays here that we might attain to the knowledge of this mystery, which is Christ, because assurance that is grounded in anything or anyone else is at best wishful thinking. At best, it's wishful thinking. <clears throat> Confidence in who God is and what he has purposed to achieve comes only by knowing and receiving and, and relishing and rejoicing in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever else we learn in our study of Scripture, it serves us well and for eternity only to the degree that it points to and, and, and consummates in the person of Jesus. And, and, and not just in him, but in him alone are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I know the word alone is not there in verse 3. Uh, but we are justified in adding the word alone, given Paul's emphasis on the exclusivity of Christ throughout this entire epistle. Over and over again, as we'll, we'll see as we go along, over and over again, Paul emphasizes the exclusivity of Christ. In him, in him alone are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, don't be confused by Paul's language as I explained in a previous message in this series, when he speaks of Christ as God's mystery, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, he does not mean to suggest that who Jesus is and what he has accomplished are concealed from us. A mystery in Paul's language is simply a truth that remained hidden, a truth that remained inaccessible until such time as God took the initiative to reveal it and make it clear. So Paul is not saying here that Christ is mysterious in the sense that we can't figure him out. He is a mystery in the sense that it wasn't until the revelation of God in, in, in the historical person of Christ that we gained total access to the truth of God's redemptive purposes through him. And knowledge and wisdom are hidden in him, not in the sense of being impenetrable or beyond our understanding, but rather in the sense of being deposited or stored up in him. 
In other words, he's the only person and place. Jesus Christ is the only person and place where authentic, accurate knowledge of God and his ways with mankind can be found. Amen? When Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, he isn't saying that a person can't know anything at all if he isn't a Christian. Thank God people can know, you know, who aren't Christians who can, can, can know about medicine, right? <laughs> and, and know how to repair cars and know how to do things. He's not, that's not what he's saying here. I mean, the world is filled with brilliant atheists, sadly. Um, our universities and, and think tanks, they are populated with highly, intellectual, highly intellectual and well-educated scholars who know nothing of Jesus beyond you know, their concession. Well, a man by that name lived 2,000 years ago. Some won't even concede that. Rather, Paul's point here is that true knowledge of the ultimate meaning of human existence is found only in light of the identity and the redemptive accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Insight into the character of God and his relationship with his creation is found only by looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. The nature and eternal destiny of the human soul, the grounds on which we differentiate between good and evil, the wisdom of God's ways in the world, as well as the pathway of reconciliation with him. These are all attached to Christ. If we know him, we know those things. Amen? If we know him, we know those things. And Paul's language, it's both extensive here and intensive. He declares that all, not merely some, of the treasures, not the trivialities, of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And his point here is twofold. First, there is a vast reservoir of riches in knowing Jesus. That is to say, all the treasures, that phrase, all the treasures, points to the lavish, inexhaustible, far-reaching, mind-blowing, as John Piper would probably add, uh, breathtaking realities that we discover and enjoy when we grow in our knowledge of him. And secondly, Paul's language reminds us that knowledge of Christ is to be honored and valued above all else. Knowledge of Christ is to be honored and valued above all else. Isn't that how we would treat any treasure that we discovered, right? If we found a treasure buried in our yard, something of, of incredible value, I mean, we would, we would honor and value that thing. The knowledge and the wisdom that we find in Christ and in Christ alone are not to be treated casually or flippantly or presumptuously. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value. And as such, we we ought to ponder it deeply and pray for it daily and plunder its riches and, and protect it from defilement and penetrate its mysteries and a private and, 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 and prize it above all earthly wealth and all human wisdom and all fleshly gain. There's nothing you could ever hope to know about God, his will, and his ways that you won't find in Jesus. Amen? And you'll find it only in Jesus. He alone is the treasury of divine wealth and wisdom. 
And this is what Paul prayed. In these three verses, he tells us this is what he prayed that the Colossians would experience. And in closing, I would just ask, is that how you and I pray for each other and for ourselves? If not, it ought to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word to us this morning. Your word, which is truth, and your word, which is life. Your word, which nourishes our souls and and uh, helps by your spirit to conform us further to the image of Christ. And in consideration of just these three verses this morning, we pray, Father God, that you would energize us in the struggle uh, to intercede for others, that we might agonize in that intercession, stir us to strive without ceasing in prayer for one another. May our minds rest without wavering, fully convinced of all that, that God has promised, and may we be ever more enriched by, that, by the knowledge of that great mystery, which is his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May every doubt be defeated as we immerse our minds in the word of God, and may the Holy Spirit indelibly imprint upon our hearts the joyful and undeniable assurance that what God has said, God will do. And finally, may we always and only look to Christ, and Christ alone is the fount of all necessary wisdom and knowledge, fully convinced that there is nothing we could ever hope to know about God, his will, and his ways that we won't find in him. In his name and for your glory we pray, amen.